How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 144 of X-Labs. We have a gross of episodes, I I think, if I remember my math right. Uh, Today, we've got a book, or we've got an episode, I should say, that uh, we in the biz of uh, fake-ass comics historianism would uh, call a uh, snake-bit script. This is a script I tried to write for... Well, like a, a day and a half now, and every single time I sat down to do it, something would come up, and I wouldn't be able to attend to it. So this is a well, this is a late night edition of the program. Not that anybody would know; uh, it's still releasing on time, but uh, it's a uh, it's gotten to the eleventh uh, hour, so to speak. Uh, now today we're back to Excalibur. Here, this is going to be Excalibur, Volume Four, Number Sixteen. Had a February 2021 cover date. The story's called They Keep Killing Braddocks. Written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshinaga. Letters, VCs Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sabolsky. Cover price, $4. Uh, went on sale just a couple days before Christmas, December 23rd of 2020. I think that's Festivus, isn't it? Maybe this issue will be a uh, Festivus miracle. So, we open with Gambit preparing some breakfast for he and Rogue while they dutifully recap everything that happened during the recent Festival of Swords. You know, that whole thing happened in Otherworld, Betsy died, the Purple Captain Britain Corps came back, but their Betsy did not. And they're quite broken up about it. But we don't hang with them long, instead we shift scenes over to Jubilee and Shogo as they come across Richter trying to cast a spell in the soil. I'd say that's no euphemism, but I'm struggling to connect that with anything dirty. So uh, if you have any suggestions, please feel free to let me know. Anyway, he's trying to contact... Now, Jubilee hugs Richter and assures him that Apocalypse is gone. He seems even more desperate to connect with Apocalypse than, like, Rogue seemed over Betsy. It's kind of odd. From here, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred... We've got Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, Richter, Jamie Braddock? Uh, is it too much to hope that he's just visiting Krakoa? Uh, also, Captain Avalon, Megan Braddock, and Maggie Braddock. Well, that does not bode well for this being a story that'll remain in the uh, 616 universe, right? Oh well, let's keep going. We join Rogue and Gambit at the Green Lagoon for some day drinking. Now they chat up Blob the barkeep, who thanks them for filling him in on what went down with Betsy because no one else thought to tell him. Not quite sure why Blob would feel he needed to know. Uh, I guess Krakoa is about community, so uh, stands to reason everybody should know everything. 
They're then joined by Richter and Jubilee, the latter of whom found a babysitter for her baby not dragon so she could, uh, you know, tie one on. Now, Richter is reluctant to drink, considering it's barely noon. Rogue uh, is a little, you know, insistent. She says that they're drinking for Betsy, to which he asks if they're also drinking for A. Rogue's like, oh, hell no, which upsets Richter greatly, as A wanted to show them all the greater mysteries of mutant kind. Uh, you know, dude's really starting to talk like he is uh, all in, all bought in to being part of uh, Apocalypse's coven or whatever it was there. Now, Gambit, he's somewhat sympathetic to Richter. Uh, either that or he's already drunk. Um, he tries telling him that they didn't outright lose. He left as a result of Saturnine's game. This doesn't really help. Uh, all it does is make Richter wonder why he even started training them if he was just going to up and leave anyway without finishing it. Well, I mean, in fairness to Apocalypse, I don't think he knew that the inter- interdimensional witch queen was going to enforce a trade between the two sides. Anywho, this aimless chat is interrupted by our crew being summoned to the Boneyard. You see, Gambit had hired X-Factor to check into Betsy's case, you know, to verify her death like they do, so that they can, you know, get into the business of resurrecting her. This takes us to an info page, and it's X-Factor's report on Betsy Britton. And the results are inconclusive. They can't confirm that Betsy is indeed dead due to all the weirdness surrounding her passing. And so they cannot refer her to the resurrection queue without risk of potential duplication. We jump back to comics, and our gang is at the Boneyard chatting up X-Factor. Rogue feels like they're just blowing them off, and even kinda gets in Northstar's face over how aloof he is over the situation. I mean, he's North Northstar, right? When isn't he aloof? Yeah. Uh, we do see Aurora in her X-Factor togs here. This might be the first time we actually see her in this costume. Uh, anyway, Rachel butts in to settle some tea kettles here and reminds Rogue that X-Factor is only involved here to be investigators. They can't allow their feelings to come into play. She further tells Rogue that, uh, regarding Betsy's death, there was no body, there was no injury outside the mystical shattering, just no conclusive evidence that she's actually dead. You know, none of the eyewitnesses to the event in question can even explain what it was that they saw in a conclusive way. And so, Rogue stomps out like a toddler throwing a tantrum. She claims to know what it's like being on, quote, the other side of the X-Men. Not sure exactly what that means, other than the obvious take that she's referring to her time as a villain, but I'm not sure how that applies here, and also, hasn't she heard there are no X-Men right now? I don't know. Rachel follows and suggests that the experts in Excalibur... Oh, damn it. Go back to Otherworld and check out the scene of the crime. And... Damn it, just one panel later, we're back in friggin' Otherworld. Are you serious? We can't even get one issue away from this friggin' place? Come on. Would you, would you guys be upset if I just stopped now? Uh, Alright, so we're in Avalon, at that weirdo Jamie Braddock's throne. Stood before him is the Braddock family, including their weird genius daughter Valeria. I, I, I mean, Maggie. Rogue tells Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian that they're here to investigate Betsy's death in hopes that, you know, they'll be able to bring her back with a quickness. 
Now, Maggie and her weird Uncle Jamie have some fun exchanges here, but if I'm being honest, I gotta say we've seen all this before anytime Valeria and Uncle Doom have a chat. Maggie then, uh, allows her mother Megan, who's going by Lady Gloriana, to share her current theory with the class. And so she says a whole lot of stuff, which basically comes down to checking out the scene of the crime... Which, well, Excalibur already planned to do before they even got here, so it's like we just wasted two pages. Whatever the case, Lady Glory... I'm not calling her that. Megan asks King Jamie the Weird for permission to accompany Rogue and the gang, and he doesn't care. He allows it. Now, once they're gone, Maggie asks if she can go out to play, and Brian's cool with it. But he's got a concerned look on his face about Megan and Excalibur's current mission. That weirdo Jamie Braddock wonders aloud if Brian is just worried that his wife will run into his girlfriend, of course referencing Saturnine. Jamie then takes his leave, grabbing his snazzy Mr. Sinister cape and heading through the Krakoan gateway. It would seem that he has his own plan for how to get Betsy back. We next rejoin Excalibur plus Megan right below the Starlight Citadel, which was apparently the site of Betsy's shattering? I can't remember off the top of my head if that's actually where it happened, but... I mean, we've got like four editors on this book. I gotta assume they know what they're talking about. Now, Megan seems very excited to be here and even lets out a whoosh from the bottom of her dress. Uh, Not sure what that's all about, but it sure makes for an interesting visual. Richter then plops open the grimoire of A... Gambit wonders exactly what it is, suggesting it looks something like a cookbook. To which Richter says it basically is. We should have scenes to Bar Sinister, where King Jamie the Weird has decided to call in his favor. If you remember, back during X of Tens, Mr. Sinister promised Jamie a black market clone of his choosing. Well, I'm guessing he's about to make good on that promise. Uh, Jamie even returns Sinister's cape to him, claiming that he's a bit sick of it. Sinister agrees to terms and questions whether or not Jamie's accent is real because he swears it sounds fake. That's kind of sassy. It doesn't really register on the Hellions' sassometer, but it's a little sassy. I think we give him a three on the sassy scale for that. Next, back to Otherworld. The gang joins hands and prepares to cast a summoning spell. Jubilee even lets out a, quote, let our powers combine which would be cute if it weren't so annoying. Then the plane is covered with emerald energy. Richter speaks the summoning spell and calls for Betsy Braddock to step forward. What they get is, well, a dozen or two purple Captain Britons, all Betsy's in a way, but not their Betsy. Now, Richter, while a bit disappointed, is also pleasantly surprised that they were able to complete a spell without a... The Purple Captain Britain Corps assures Excalibur that they will search the realms for the missing Betsy Prime, or Betsy 616, I suppose, and they leave. Next up, an info page, and it's from the grimoire of a Richter. Richter has kind of commandeered the book. It's a page from Apocalypse's book that has been annotated by Richter with what he learned in the casting. It's not a bad page, uh, just kind of boring for anyone who could, you know, give a damn about magic, like me. We wrap up with Betsy, maybe our Betsy, maybe not our Betsy, being awakened and told that she is Captain Britain. When she stirs, she finds herself in bed about to be served tea by Warren Worthington. Uh, 
In the background of this scene is a framed portrait of a purple-haired queen who will also be on the cover of the very next issue of Excalibur, but that's where we leave it. Next episode, we'll see the return of the LGY numbers, the legacy numbering, to the X-Books, as we're going to be taking a look at the 350th issue of Wolverine. It's actually Wolverine Volume 7, Number 8, but there's also a great big 350 on it, because why not? But before we get there, let's talk Excalibur. I want to say this up front. When I started reading this issue of Excalibur, I didn't think for even a second that I missed an issue. Which is like a first, so definite props for that. I also didn't think for a moment that we'd already be back in friggin' Otherworld, so whatever the opposite of props for that. Um, I don't want to say I dislike the issue, because up until the Otherworld stuff, I was quite enjoying it. It was very much in the mold of the, I mean, say it with me, the quiet post-crossover story, which, as I've said time and again, and I'm sure I will again and again, I'm I'm a sucker for those. I think they're a lot of fun. But then, Otherworld, where we continue to take our square peg X characters and jam them as hard as possible into a round-shaped magical hole. And I didn't expect that to sound quite that dirty, and I apologize. But I hope you can all see what I'm trying to say here. Um, The characters we have in this book, it's almost like an embarrassment of riches for uh, for an ex-fan of my vintage. Uh, These are some all-time great characters, some of my all-time favorites. But they absolutely don't need to be hanging out in Otherworld and dealing in magic. Uh, this feels like like Civil War era. There's a story that this writer wants and needs to tell, and damn it, they're going to make the characters fit no matter what. To me, it's like just another case of senselessly breaking the toys for a, hopefully, short-term shift in the status quo. I don't understand why these characters would be so motivated to deal with all this magic stuff. And, I mean, this is a question I've had from the very start. Uh, Let's talk about some of these magical characters here. Let's talk about Richter and his uh, relationship to Apocalypse. Um, Very culty. He is a very uh, devoted follower of A. And to be honest, I'm still not sure exactly where Apocalypse is. And I may be projecting here, but I feel like the writers aren't sure either. Sometimes, and I think, I think you know, we get all these weird words, right? We we got that info dump back in X Men number twelve, and then again in X Men number fourteen, where we heard about Araco and Amenth and all these weird words here. And I feel like sometimes we've heard that he is living on Araco, and other times he's living in Amenth. To which I'm like. Isn't Araco now on Earth? Did I somehow completely misunderstand the entire trade at the end of X of Ten's destruction? Is Araco on Earth? If not, then what in the hell did Apocalypse choose them as part of the trade for? Um, I mean, hopefully this will be cleared up before long. Because it is one of the main takeaways from the 22-chapter excursion we just put ourselves through. You figure with 22 chapters, they'd be able to include all the information, maybe in one of those 22 chapters. Now, I know the issue of X-Men that we've got coming up in a couple of episodes 
It sounds like it might be an epilogue to Exitens here. The the story itself is titled Sorted Out, which is an obvious play on words here. So hopefully Sorted Out will help us sort out all the fallout. <laughs> and we can figure out exactly where all these pieces landed here. Um, because, guys, I'm tired of Otherworld. I'm so tired of Otherworld. I'm hoping... This is, uh, I'm hoping this is short-lived um, Let's talk the art The art in this book continues to impress I think the art is really, really good here um, Definitely doing uh, the heavy lifting Jamie Braddock is still quite entertaining I like seeing him with Sinister Even though uh, the Sinister in Excalibur isn't quite up to the caliber of uh, the Sinister in Hellions I, I think if... Uh, if we can get another Zeb Wells scene of uh, Sinister and uh, that weirdo Jamie having a chat, I think that could be a lot of fun. Where this was, you know, it was okay. <laughs> it was okay. It wasn't bad. Um, this is the first time I'm seeing uh, Megan and Brian's daughter, or at least realizing that I am uh, Maggie. Not sure what her deal is. She strikes me as a dollar store Valeria Richards. Um just a uh, you know, young kid who's way, way, way too smart And uh, everybody in the room kind of defers to her I don't know why we needed two in the Marvel Universe Unless I'm completely missing the point of uh, what Maggie is going to be used for I really can't say But uh, overall, I'd say that uh, this is a uh, middling issue There were parts that I really enjoyed uh, And... The, the first half of the issue, I really, really dug it And it actually showed me that Teeny Howard can write these characters Very well when she's not shoehorning them into her overarching and very boring magic plot Unfortunately, I mean, we're still in Otherworld 16 issues of Otherworld Plus the entirety of X of Tens We need a break from this like really bad. We need to we need to shift directions, even if it's just for a little while. Just let's shake the stink of Otherworld off this book for just a minute, so we can maybe see these characters acting like characters that we know and love, rather than conduits for uh, to facilitate this magic story that I don't think anybody asked for. I know I didn't. Um, it really doesn't appear that there's any end in sight for this Otherworld nonsense So I guess all we can do Because this is a, you know, uh, an all-inclusive <laughs> X-Men project that we're working on here We're not going to drop the book But uh, we'll grin and bear it and we'll just hope for the best We'll take our victories uh, where, where they are And I don't remember who wrote in and said Finding an enjoyment, any finding any enjoyment in Excalibur is like a hard-fought victory, and it's true. It's very, very true. But that's all I got to say about this issue of Excalibur, the first chapter of the reign of reign of X era of Excalibur. Agree, disagree? I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know your thoughts. And uh, speaking of thoughts, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about. The true flagship of this line, Hellions, <laughs> number seven. He says, One of the problems with reading digitally is that the books run on. Whenever you get to the end of the issue, you're encouraged to read the next. Every time I listen to a Hellions episode, I immediately go and reread the issue in the light of what you had said. I always enjoy it so much that I read the next issue, then the next, and by the end of it, I've forgotten what happened in each issue, 
and what I wanted to say in response to you. I either need to start keeping notes or just accept that Hellions is so great that I can't stop reading it. That's pretty good feedback for a comic. Yeah, I couldn't say it any better. Um, it's not often, and we, we've talked about um, this project and how sometimes it's an absolute joy, sometimes it's a little bit of a chore, and sometimes it's uh, an absolute slog. And I hope listening <laughs> isn't the same way, but uh, in the reading and in the analysis and in the writing, sometimes it's a real slog, and sometimes, like with Hellions, it's just, I want more. I really, really want more, and it's hard to stop. Especially when I have, you know, I'm looking at my short box, and I'll have like two or three Hellions in a row, and it's hard to, it's hard to to stop myself from going on. It's it doesn't happen often where something like that occurs, but uh, yeah, Hellions, it's it's very, 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 very good book. I, I mean, you can check this box off your X-lapsed bingo. If you're not reading Hellions, you should be reading Hellions because it is. That damn good And uh, I do want to say to Damien I appreciate so much that uh, You revisit the issues After listening to the show That's absolutely amazing And I can't tell you How much that means to me So thank you Uh, Damien continues This series could be written from me My first X-book was X-Factor number 9 Which featured Cameron Hodge being sinister And the start of the Mutant Massacre My first X-Men was the following month With the first appearance of the Marauders I bought the first appearance of Mr. Sinister, Nanny, and the Orphan Maker off the stands. Every single element runs my nostalgia spot. And, I mean, how cool is that? How cool is that? That uh, this book, (laughs) this weird second-string book, feels so traditional that, you know, people who were buying these books off the racks as they were coming out can feel like this is being, this is, you know, a throwback. This is for them. And... Of course, I didn't come in until a couple of years after this, so I experienced all these things after the fact, but I am also very nostalgic for uh, this era of books here. Uh, X Factor was a huge part of my X fan upbringing, the early, you know, original five issues. And I totally agree. I mean, Cameron Hodge, I talked about it um, when we when we saw him in the Hellions here. It's I always kind of inflated his importance because I had his first appearance. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that's just the silly things that kids do. You know, if it if you open up the Wizard magazine and you see, like, first appearance of somebody, like that suddenly makes it that much more important. So that is definitely awesome, and it was very, very cool to see him here. Um, Damien continues, Talking of reading along, I'm falling a little behind, but I noticed that near-future episodes are covering Sword Number 1 and Juggernaut Number 4, which are not yet on Marvel Unlimited. I like to read the books before I listen to you, so I've decided to skip the ones I haven't read so I can get to the books that I can't wait for your response to, like Marauders Number 16, and then go back again to see if to when they're uploaded to Unlimited. That means my comments will be time-traveling a bit, but hopefully it'll mean I'll get closer to being caught up with you. And again, I can't tell you how much it means to me that we have these communications and discussions here. It really means the world to me that you 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 write in, you all write in. I, I it it's really hard for me to even put into words here. So, time traveling comments perfectly fine. <laughs> they will definitely be covered and be just as appreciated as any of the comments here. Uh, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until I manage to get into the resurrection queue just for a new set of knees. <laughs> Make mine X lapsed. Well, thank you so much for your thoughts on that issue, Damien. Hellions, I mean, 
Again, if anybody's listening who isn't reading Hellions, what are you doing? (laughs) It's just such a good book. It is uh, definitely the highlight for me. I mean, uh, Marauders is up there. Uh, Hellions, uh, Hellions and Marauders, the two books I would have never had any expectations for in this entire project. And boy, if I haven't been blown away. I mean, it's amazing stuff. But thank you so much again, Damien. Next, we got Jesse talking about the latest issue of New Mutants and some more things here. He says, New Mutants is finally back. I really enjoyed this issue, especially the points that Gabby brought up about clones that no one wanted to give a good answer to. The only thing I'm not a huge fan of is... Let's see here. He gave me a pronunciation guide for uh, the, the character I've been calling Anol. It's actually Anole. Which, uh, thank you. I, I, <laughs> I never get these names right. So, uh, Jesse is not a fan of Anole being shown as an inexperienced mutant when he has been an X-Man and has years of experience. If anything, we need a story of Anole dealing with the death of Rockslide. You rarely saw one without the other, and I'm not sure if we've seen how Anole, Anole, Anole is dealing with losing his best friend. Anole just goes to work at the bar and doesn't think of it, I guess. I would love to see him sitting on the X of Swords playset talking with his old friend, and then have the new Rockslide come up to him and just sit next to him. Not a word said. End of issue. Yes, uh, you know, that's that's funny you say that, because um, Anole's been around for probably near 20 years now. And that's one of the reasons why I, uh, why I listed all the characters on those uh, squads. In the uh, in the wild hunter, whatever whatever that uh, exercise that the new mutants were doing with the kids here, so I mean we had characters like uh, like Petra from the dangerous uh, the deadly Genesis group, which I suppose she probably doesn't have a whole lot of field experience, but still she's uh, she should be a, quite a bit older than some of these characters, uh, at least you know a contemporary with like Storm. So it certainly seemed weird to see her there. Also, Anole, he's been around for, like you mentioned, he's been an X-Man before. He's been around for a very long time. It's odd that they would, uh, it just feels like some of the writers don't know uh, their X-history here, and they just see, I mean, some of the things here, this goes back to the Morrison run, where they'd have like a neat design for a character, right? They'd find like an Anole, you know, he's like this weird little lizard guy. You have a uh, rock slide who's got a cool look. Um, and they would just be in the background. And it felt like all they were were wallpaper. And I think a lot of our uh, creators these days don't see them as anything but regardless if there's been any sort of development or maturation of their character, it's just, Oh, these are the ones in the background, so they must just be students, inexperienced, kids. They need training. And so Anole's there, and he's getting, you know, he's getting beaten up by Rain Kid or Rain Boy or whatever it was. But, uh, yeah, it does seem very, very strange. And also, the fact that he hasn't commented on Rockslide is very strange as well. I'm remembering the uh, free comic book day. Issue that we discussed right before X attends here, where Rockslide wasn't on the uh, on that card. It was Glob Herman on the card. So I wonder. I feel like those are two characters who played background so often that uh, writers conflate them. You know, it's like oh, well, we got. It's like they project one onto the other. So yeah, we got this big bulky guy who sometimes hangs around with the lizard boy. So uh, yeah, same character, <laughs> right? But uh, I do wonder. 
if we'll ever get anything out of Enole or any of the, you know, Academy X era young mutants to talk about Rockslide. All we've seen so far is, you know, Polaris kind of lost her mind over it for a minute. But I don't know. I wonder if there's anything planned for Rockslide here. I'm not confident that we'll see him again anytime soon, so. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully the, we'll see him again sometime soon and maybe get a little bit of an update on uh, what it means to be in, you know, Otherworld Resurrectee, I guess. Um, now going to Gabby. Oof. Now that was a really, really strong scene and an excellent question. And that's a question that we've been asking on the show for quite a while now. Uh, ever since, you know, Madeline Pryor was told, nah, you ain't coming back. You know, this is a great question, and I'm hoping, and I'm, I'm confident that this will be addressed pretty soon here. It almost seems like they're they're painting a target on poor Scout, where uh, something will come up. I, I Again, I could be completely wrong, but that's just what it looked like to me. I, I thought it was great. I loved the way the New Mutants handled the question by not handling the question, because they don't know. They know just about as much as anybody does. It's... They're being put in a position of authority over the, uh, you know, the Academos habitat or whatever, but they don't know Jack, and uh, you know they they don't know they can't they can't they can't assuage anybody's concerns, especially not a clone who is very very worried that she is a, a lesser than character who won't be brought back at a, at the risk of duplication. So looking forward to that. Looking forward to seeing how that plays out here. Now Jesse continues. I know you're not a huge fan of X-Men in space, but I love them on Cosmic Adventures. The classic story that no one ever talks about is how the of how the X-Men face the brood for the first time. That's how I fell in love with the X-Men and aliens. I love that story in early Claremont. Uh, the New Mutants at the beginning of Hoxpox was a blast. I enjoyed the X-Men title for the first time since Hoxpox started in those... Two issues of how Brew learned to make omelets. I don't want outer space men every year, but I do enjoy them. <laughs> that Brew issue, the, the two-part Brew issue with the egg. Oh, boy. I, I almost, like, noped out. <laughs> that was the first... Well, actually, I can't say it was the first time, but it was... Uh, one of the biggest times where I was like, I can't do this anymore. It was... That was one of those chore episodes I was talking about just a little bit ago. I don't know what it is about me. I never, I've never been able to glom on to uh, the X Men in space. I think the closest I ever got was, I mean, outside of the original Dark Phoenix, which was like a novelty. But uh, I didn't hate the Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire by Ed Brubaker, even though it lasted like seventeen years to tell the story. I kind of got into it. Which was a surprise to me And it's like I always want to enjoy them Because I mean Why wouldn't I want to enjoy them But I, anytime I see the X-Men go to space I I want to like it I remember right before the trial of Gambit uh, They went out to space um, It was actually we talked about the lead-in To that during Merry X-Lapse Where we talked about The second Rockefeller Center Uncanny X-Men issue Where Gladiator comes and he fights Cannonball Over New York and uh then he sends them to the Shi'ar to do some stuff. And I wanted to enjoy that story so much. And I didn't. I just did not care for it at all. It's 
it's always a hard sell for me. No matter what the crew, uh, anytime the Teen Titans go to Starfire's planet, and you know, and Starfire is you know going to be married again to somebody, I hate those stories. I I just can't, I just can't do it. <laughs> I just like my, uh, I, I I like my you know. I don't want to say street level, but I like my Earth-based stuff. Uh, Green Lantern. Love Green Lantern. Loved it when he was on Earth. When he goes into space, I'm asleep. <laughs> you know, it's just... I don't know. Maybe it's I feel like there are no limits to a space story. You could do whatever you want with it. You don't need to be careful. You don't need to really... There are no rules that apply. It's just anything goes, and I just don't care for it. Jesse continues... You'd mentioned that you're not sure when the Kree and Skrull joined into one empire. It happens in Empire, when Hulkling, son of the Kree, Captain Marvel, and the Skrull, Princess Anel, became the prophesied ruler of the two species. Well, that is helpful, and it uh, saves me from having to read any more Empire, so thank you so much. Uh, Jesse wraps up with... I'm sorry if this was so jumbled. I've been wanting to write in for weeks and finally have a small break tonight from work and family life. I still love the show. Keep it up. And until Cyclops' catchphrase is actually, that's it. Make my next laps. And uh, for folks who don't know what that's a reference to, um, I was recently on the Wizards uh, podcast where we talked about the X-Men's 30th anniversary and the inside back cover of that issue had a uh, had an advertisement for a collectible watch. Uh, Character Time made these watches. They were limited to x x hundred or x thousand of uh, copies of them, or I guess watches, I suppose. And there's one with uh, that that I own actually. My brother-in-law bought it for me for Christmas a few years ago, knowing that I'm a big Cyclops fan, and it has Cyclops. It's from. You know, I actually found the issue it was in. It was in a uh, Neil Adams issue, um, probably in the 50s of the, you know, original run of X-Men. And it's Cyclops, and his uh, his visor lights up if you push the button on the side of it. Uh, my batteries are dead, so I haven't been able to do it. But uh, he's got his fist balled up, and he's saying, that's it. I mean, it seems like the most random thing in the world to put on a watch, head, watch face, but... Uh, yeah, it's Cyclops with a fist balled up in a, in a speech balloon saying, that's it. And uh, on the Wizards podcast, we joked that that was Cyclops', uh, Cyclops you know, famous catchphrase. <laughs> that's it. I'll have to try to remember to share a picture of that somewhere on uh, one of the socials. <laughs> I'll probably forget, but hopefully I, I won't. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Jesse. And, and never worry about writing in late. I, I know life happens. Life gets in the way. Life is uh, life is real. And this is uh, this is just a silly comic book show. But uh, thank you so much for writing in. I'm I'm so happy that you're still uh, you're still digging the program here. Uh, we're gonna wrap up with a piece from our friend Evan, who is talking about. X-Factor, Volume 1, Number 1, which I had asked him to read because uh, this was right after we wrapped up... Um, oh, this was actually the penultimate episode of X-Lapsedination, which was the cable, epilo- uh, the cable eulogy issue. Here was two stories. This was X-Men The Exterminated. The first half of the book was about Hope and Jean... Going to Cable's old safe houses The second half was a story narrated by Cable About the time where he realized that his father Scott Summers was going to be the perfect dad And and devoted, loving husband 
which doesn't really jive with how the story actually went. Uh, so uh, Evan had commented, and I had asked him to check out that first issue of X Factor to see, to see Cyclops doing what he did. So Evan says, Just read the original X Factor number one and got to see Cyclops deserting his family in real time instead of imagining how it might have gone. It was weird. The fight between him and Madeline at the beginning of the issue was conveniently timed. Maybe I could earn a retroactive no prize by suggesting that his restlessness was a result of Jean's reawakening and their psychic connection. The conflicting feelings Scott has after learning of Jean's return are understandable. I can even see why he would resist telling her about Maddie. But did he wander aimlessly for two weeks without calling home? This makes me wonder even more about that Claremont story in X-Men The Exterminated. Why did Corsair need to show up and give Scott that fatherly intervention? It seems like Scott had more going on, there and in X-Factor number 1, than simply being restless or pining for an old flame. He may have had a sort of breakdown. Very possible, huh? It's funny because, uh, and I mentioned this during that issue, that episode of X-Lapstination, there was the famous issue, Uncanny X-Men 201, where Storm and Cyclops have their duel to see who can lead the X-Men, and then Scott decides to retire, right? Then there's X-Factor number one, where Scott is taken out of retirement, and I'd always assumed that there was like a couple of years between those two issues. And there wasn't. There was one month. <laughs> they were one month apart for cover dates, which blew my mind when I actually came to that realization. Because in reading this Claremont story, where Corsair, as Evan puts it here, has an intervention with his son here, and Cyclops learns to be the doting husband and father, I assume we had a lot of space to squeeze that story in. Because even in that issue, or in that story, uh, Cyclops and Madeline were at odds, and Scott was very restless. You know, they were sleeping in separate beds, and it seemed like their marriage was just uh, uh, not not on the right path. And so I, being the fake-ass comics historian that I am, I decided to see if I could fit this story in anywhere, and uh, lo and behold, <laughs> between his retirement and return was like four weeks in real time. <laughs> so maybe, what, 20 minutes in comics time, in Marvel's sliding time scale? You just can't fit this story in here. It's it's very, very weird. And uh, he does act... It's not a good look, the way Scott uh, behaves in X-Factor number one, and in the entire like first dozen issues or so of X-Factor, because it's... Uh, it, it shows him as anything but a devoted husband and father. Evan continues, On the surface, yes, Cyclops seems like a completely selfish jerk, and Bobby and Hank aren't much better, giving Scott a pep talk and apparently forgetting as well that he has a family. I'll blame it more on the story being about the formation of a super team than a mediation on marriage and personal responsibility. Yeah, that's probably the best way to do it, huh? Because, uh, yeah, he was being rooted on, basically, by uh, Beast and uh, Iceman. It's uh, not a good look. Not a good look here. It's it's as though uh, Maddie and Nathan are just an inconvenience, and uh, out of sight, out of mind. And uh, hey, you know you're a you're a hero again, and we're gonna you're gonna be with your uh, you know, the love of your life here. It's weird, very weird. 
Now, Evan wraps up with, Aside from the fun of revisiting the era of my earliest comics collecting, I plan to read more just to watch the horrific dumpster fire that is Cyclops' personal life. <laughs> well, I hope you do. And I hope you uh, you keep us uh, abreast of your thoughts and uh, takeaways from Cyclops' weird year or so of uh, avoiding his wife. <laughs> and then... Uh, Finding out what he thinks he found out about her And then finding out that he didn't find out anything about her And then uh, finding out about, uh, well, you'll get there You'll get there when you get there But thank you so much for uh, for checking in there And thank you for checking out X-Factor number one I think we can call that X-Lapsed Extra Credit And uh, it really, really means a lot to me that you did that Anybody else who wants to read uh, X-Factor number one and share your thoughts, please Please feel free to do so But uh, that's where we're going to put a pin in the mailbag for today And uh, the episode overall, I suppose, why not? Now, if anybody out there would like to be part of the mailbag Please feel free to write in You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics Or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com Or xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com you can find us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie radio needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Now, before I finally stop yammering, I do want to, uh, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to ask a favor. Now, if you enjoy this program, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it, please tell a friend, spread the word, help me get the word out there that this show exists and... Uh, if you like it, hey, it's even better. So if you got any uh, pals out there who are X-Men fans or perhaps even X-Lapsed themselves, please let them know that uh, this show exists. <laughs> I'd very, very much appreciate it. So I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today and allowing me to be part of your day. Until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>